John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to go to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this story. Uh, We are thankful for the sermon Jesus preached following this story. Uh, We ask that you would help us to understand Jesus's uh, response to the people, uh, to their response to uh, their expression of faith, his correction of them, his uh, compassion for them, his love for them. Uh, Would we receive that this morning? Uh, Would you correct us where we need to be corrected? Would you have compassion on us uh, when we need compassion? And would you love us um, and uh, show us that you love us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most potent challenges to Christian belief is the problem of evil. Um, it's, it's probably the hardest thing um, to face. Um, and ba- that is basically, if God is so good, uh, how come the world is so broken? If God is so powerful, why is there still violence? Why is there still tragedy? Uh, does not the continued presence of suffering mean either God is actually not all good or not all-powerful. Now, the assumption behind this question is that these are the only two options. Um, Either God, being all-powerful, could fix the world and chooses not to because he's not all-good, or God, being all-good, wants to fix the world, but he can't because he's not all-powerful. And according to this logic, he can't be both all-good and all-powerful if evil and suffering still exist. There can be no third way. Now, modern Western people are not the first people to ask this question. It's been present in some form throughout all human history. And so that means the problem of evil is not an exclusively Christian problem because evil is not an exclusively Christian problem. It is something that humans have wrestled with in every culture uh, because evil is everywhere. All religions and philosophies, including atheism, have to answer the problem of evil. 
Um, and while we may not be, I may not be 100% happy with Christianity's answer, in my experience, the Bible's answer is more satisfying than any other on offer. But reading John 6, the entirety of John 6, um, I wonder if Jesus was ever confronted with this question directly. Uh, around the fire with his disciples, did they ask him this? Uh, after all, the problem of evil addresses him more personally than it addresses any of us. Uh, because unlike us, Jesus is God. It's, it's a question to him. In fact, Jesus' life and ministry only intensifies the problem because you can see what Jesus can do, what God can do. So far in the book of John, as we've worked through it over the past couple months, we have seen how Jesus is both incredibly good and incredibly powerful, both able and willing to address human suffering. And while he's had some pushback from Jewish leaders, the masses are starting to take notice and they're starting to believe. John 6, 2, a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And then in the scene Hamilton just read, Jesus feeds 5,000 people from just five loaves and two fish. Now, feeding 5,000 people alone surely qualifies as a miracle, but it was likely more than triple that number. Uh, commentators will note that this text only counts the men, um, so it doesn't include the women and children who are likely also present in the crowd. So you have Jesus feeding a massive crowd of people with so little. When we consider the problem of evil and give examples of human suffering that frustrate us, uh, top of the list has surely sickness and starvation, these things that Jesus is able to meet in this story and in the Gospel of John. Here Jesus is feeding thousands after healing thousands, powerfully showing that he being God, good and powerful, is able and willing to turn back suffering. No wonder the crowd's enthusiastic response in verse 14 so John 6, 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Is this not the problem of evil on display, right? Why withdraw Jesus? Like, why not go ahead and do what only you can do? In the past, I've been taught to read this text really critical of the crowd uh, for wanting to make him king, an indication of them being selfish and short-sighted. And the Gospel of John does go on to point that they are indeed missing the point of Jesus. But honestly, I would be right there with him, right? Of course they wanted Jesus to be their king. In a time before effective medicine, he healed with just a word. In a time when the vast majority of people hardly lived above subsistence level, he created abundance from poverty. If Jesus were to become king with his power and his goodness, he could eradicate famine and disease and oppression. But Jesus resists. He withdraws. And the people have to chase him down. Looking ahead to verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? The people are frustrated with Jesus. 
because he refuses to be made king. Jesus, you could do so much good. You could free us from oppression. You could heal all our sick. You could raise the dead. You could feed us. You could lead us. You could teach us. We're ready to make you king. We're ready to follow you. If you're so good and so powerful, how can you stand by while suffering continues? How many of us have felt that way in the past toward God? How many of us feel that way right now? He could come back today. He could heal our sick. He could turn poverty into abundance. He could restore the church, convert the masses, make all things right. And I think John 6, the sermon following this story, is at least part of Jesus' response to the problem of evil, at least to the way we often present it to him. And he doesn't deny the problem. On the contrary, he intensifies it so that only he can answer it. What does Jesus say? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You think the problem is your lack of food, but it is so much more than that. These opening verses are a summary of Jesus' entire sermon found here. And I want you to imagine Jesus' tone when he spoke this word to the crowds in John 6. When I read the Gospels, I always am wondering, what is the, what is the tone of Jesus' voice? He's just been chased down by a mob, rebuked for abandoning them. Was he insulted? Was he compassionate? Was he resolute and confident? And I believe Jesus was all three, and we need him to be all three, insulted, compassionate, resolute. So let's read these two verses three times with each of those tones. So first, insulted. Jesus insulted confronts their motive. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. In this sermon, Jesus is correcting the crowd. As we've said before, throughout John, if you challenge Jesus, expect to be challenged back. And that's exactly what Jesus does here when they try and tell him what to do. Jesus here questions where, whether they really want him to be their king, whether they really want him to save the world. After the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 15, John writes about how Jesus perceived then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Read that sentence again. Who is the true authority in that scenario, right? Are they really his subjects if they make him king? Or is he the subject and they the king? In a similar fashion, after the feeding in verse 14, they remark to themselves, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. But did they actually want a prophet? Prophets correct, they rebuke, they challenge, they purify. And here they are correcting Jesus, telling Jesus what to do. Later, when they found Jesus the next day after he disappeared, they ask him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? No doubt irritated that he escaped them, frustrated that they can't control him, that they can't keep their tabs on him. They address him as rabbi, meaning teacher, but do they want to be taught? 
Uh, Edward Klink writes, although rabbi serves as an honorific title that accorded the individual with the highest status as a teacher, it does not reveal the nature of their intended discipleship, which up to this point has been motivated more by hunger than humility. If Jesus is worthy to be their king, able to save, where's their humble response to him? Often, our framing of the problem of evil and the framing of our own problems before God, when we come before God, they unwittingly enthrone us over God, as if he, the ruler, is subject to us, the ruled, as if we know better than he does. But that makes us God and him not. But we are not God. We have blind spots. We have questionable motives. We are self-interested, quick to anger, slow to forgive often. And Jesus is none of those things. Um, in the last sermon in John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus moves about objectively following the Father's will, so we can be confident that Jesus has good reasons to heal this person and not that person, to feed this crowd and not that one, to satisfy some of our questions, but leave other questions unanswered, even when it's painful. Imagine if Jesus had submitted to their requests, became king without the cross. Would the world have been saved as we needed it to be saved? with people still sinful, still dying, still alienated from God, but healthy and well-fed. No one in this crowd had any idea about Jesus' death and resurrection. Their vision for Jesus' lordship was limited to their short-sighted vantage point. And this is still true often of my vision of Jesus' lordship, where I have no idea the extent to which God is wanting to save me. The depth to which he wants to purify me and make me his. Uh, Tim Keller has written, many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, but why should that be the case? Indeed, with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of them? When we protest God's choices, we betray our pride. We reveal that we don't actually know what it means for Jesus to be God, to be our savior, king, prophet, and teacher, to hand him the reins of our life. And if that is behind our protest, Jesus, the eternal son of God and redeemer of the world, is rightfully indignant. But Jesus is not only indignant in John 6, Jesus is also compassionate. He is pleading with them. So let's read these verses again with a compassionate tone. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus, here, compassionate, confronts their confusion. Friends, you clearly don't get it. Over and over again, the Gospel of John emphasizes how Jesus' miracles are signs. They're not destinations. And so the water turned into wine was not an end in itself. 
The healings were not ends in themselves. The bread was not an end in itself. Jesus' miracles are signs pointing ahead to something, somewhere, someone much better, more satisfying, longer lasting. The bread by the lake was meant to cultivate a deeper hunger in us, a hunger for eternal bread, the bread that is God himself. That is why Jesus fed the 5,000. This is why in the Old Testament, God sent manna from heaven. Not because manna was all the Israelites needed. Rather, it was temporary food. It tasted a little sweet like honey, which would remind them of the promised land that, they w- that was flowing with milk and honey. Right? It was a placeholder in the wilderness, in the desert, on their way to their full salvation in the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey where they would no longer need manna. The manna stopped. So why, Jesus wonders, is this crowd asking for manna again? In verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Notice how Jesus does not deny their need. He doesn't deny their hunger. The Christian response to the problem of evil is not like the Stoic or the Buddhist or the atheist, a minimization of evil, that that's where freedom from suffering happens if we don't care as much, perhaps. It cannot, evil cannot be ignored. It must be defeated. Evil is real. Suffering is real. Our desires are real. In fact, according to Jesus, they're more real than even we allow ourselves to believe. We're just confused about how to satisfy them. We think we need physical bread. We think we need physical healing. We think we need physical freedom but our physical needs are expressions of a much deeper need, the need for Christ. John 6, 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Back in 28, they they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 28 is a beautiful exchange. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice they ask about works, plural. But Jesus' answer is singular. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Just one, only one, believe. Believe in him whom God has sent. In John 6, Jesus is not refusing to be their king, to feed them and heal them and make all things right because he wants the crowd to do more. He's not playing hard to get. So that if they did more, he would give them the bread they want. He would be their king. No, Jesus is not asking the crowd to do more. He's asking the crowd to want more, to need more than they think they need. In John 6, Jesus is not wanting the crowd to ask less of him. Jesus is wanting the crowd to ask more of him, much, much more, more than they can imagine. Do not work. Do not ask me for the food that perishes. Ask me for the food that endures to eternal life, which I will give to you. With Isaiah 55, Jesus is pleading, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In your life and prayers, are you actually asking too little of Jesus? Are you asking for endless manna when what God has planned for you is eternal life in the promised land? Are we asking for endless manna, forgetting that manna is a sign pointing ahead to something much greater? Friends, there's more to life than one-off miracles. There's more to Jesus than one-off miracles. That's the message of John 6. Jesus is the miracle you want. Jesus is the healing you want. Jesus is the bread you're hungry for. How many of us need to hear that today? You're chasing Jesus down, hopping in boats, crossing lakes, because he helped you with something in the past, and you want him to do it again. You're asking for another miracle, but he won't do it, and you're confused. is, Is Jesus powerful? I keep praying, and he's not answering me. Is Jesus really good? Was yesterday's blessing just a fluke? What's going on? Well, maybe what Jesus is saying to you is there's more to life than miracles. Miracles are signs. There's more to me than free food or the ability to walk or an extra five years of life or good wine at a wedding. There's more to me than relationships and career and housing and health and other things we pray for. Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you. They'll all be yours. Jesus is saying to us, our faith in him is aimed at food that perishes when what he offers is food that leads to eternal life. There's more to life than miracles. There's more to life than just staying alive. Uh, Humans have gotten a lot better at staying alive, especially over the past 100 years. In 1900, life expectancy was 32. That was the world average. Now it's 73. We live, on average, more than twice as long as people just three generations ago. Much of this has to do with the food change, food chain. Uh, Grocery stores are modern miracles, really, uh, with refrigeration and transportation and storage and food science. We in the United States live in a very different world than Jesus did food-wise. Few of us are ever dangerously hungry, right? We have shelf-stable bread. Uh, Is this not what the crowd was after uh, in this story, right? Who needs Jesus? Uh, We have bread whenever we want it. We've got avocados, no matter the season, potato chips, Oreos, whenever we want them. Humanity has learned the science of how to make food which never dies. Is this what Jesus meant? A book was recently published in the UK called Ultra Processed People. Uh, by a doctor and a blogger. Uh, Ultra-processed food is more than just junk food, which would be like food with high fat, salt, sugar. Ultra-processed food is basically food that has chemicals for ingredients, right? Things like xanthan gum and phosphoric acid, stuff that you wouldn't find in your pantry. And these industrial ingredients help food stay fresh for longer. They make supply chains work. They help keep food cheaper. Uh, than that made from natural ingredients. And it's why the Snickers bar left over from last Halloween still tastes good, but your like freshly made leftovers like don't taste good a week later. 
Now, the author of this book um, thinks that ultra-processed food should not even be called food. Instead, he suggests it be called an addictive edible substance. Uh, the problem is ultra-processed food makes up 57% of the American diet. It's so much of what we eat. In some neighborhoods, it's all that's available. Uh, public health officials will call these food swamps. And so you have food deserts, which are places where there's no little to no access to food. Food swamps are those where the only food that you have is really unhealthy food. Uh, food, or food deserts are like the desert where Jesus fed the 5,000. There was no food available for them. Uh, food swamps are where uh, we live often. To be fair, modern food processing has no doubt saved millions of lives. I mean, it, it is a miracle. Um, the access to food, the ability to transport food. But uh, Dr. Van Tulliken still has a point. Not all food is food. Not all life is life, and settling for less than food, less than life, has consequences. Uh, we live in a technological society with all kinds of seemingly miraculous strategies for creating abundance from little, for pursuing happiness, for delaying death, but without realizing it, some of our strategies are counterproductive. Uh, we may not be in a desert anymore, but it's not necessarily a garden either. It's a swamp. We might not be dying, but we're not living either. It's not food we're eating. It's an edible substance. It's not love. It's lust. It's not peace. It's escape. It's not safety. It's exclusion. It's not freedom, it's chaos. It's not individuality, it's alienation. It's not power, it's violence. It's not life, it's just existing longer. And so when we come to Jesus asking for more bread and fish, Jesus is concerned. Jesus is concerned we not settle for less than what he came to do. He will not let us settle for less. In the Bible, you are what you eat. If we eat ultra-processed food, we become ultra-processed people. If we only eat food that perishes, we will perish. But if we eat food that lives forever, we will live forever. Which is why Jesus says in John 6, 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus came to offer the entire world eternal life in himself, Eternal life that is both a present and future reality. Uh, what does Jesus say? Both that we have eternal life and we will be raised up on the last day. It's a both and. So that through faith in the Son of God, by the Spirit of God, we experience spiritual abundance today. We have eternal life. It's in our possession. But this abundance is just a foretaste of the eternal abundance that will be ours when we are raised on the last day. What's more, in John 6, Jesus is not only the source of eternal life, he's not only Moses who gives out the manna, Jesus is the manna. He is the substance of life. He doesn't just give bread, he is the bread. He is the life. That is why we must consume him. Jesus is after, in this mysterious sermon, in his mysterious redemption, nothing less than communion with the eternal God. That's the destination, that's the longing he wants to share with us. Uh, we've spent quite a few sermons in John talking about how Jesus is one with the Father, that the Son and the Father are one. Jesus wants that same union for us. 
and verse 57 as the living father sent me and i live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me the earliest church often used john 6 as a eucharist text a text about the lord's supper later today we will have communion eating bread which represents christ's flesh drinking wine which represents his blood And when we come to the Lord's table every week, we come to Jesus not only with our hearts and our minds, but with our bodies, with our appetites, with our flesh, tasting Christ, swallowing him, being nourished by him. When Christ says he is the bread we need and we must eat his flesh and eat his blood, he is showing us that he is not a distant savior. He's not a savior who only wants to talk to us. He doesn't just want to touch our hearts and minds. He wants to reach our bodies. Uh, Frederick Gruner writes, The sacraments are not a second way of salvation. They are simply Jesus' one way of salvation, salvation by faith, scaled down, physicalized, individualized, simplified, concretized, from heart to hands, from soul to body, from group to individual. Jesus knew that we need not only spiritual things, but also physical things in order to grasp him more easily, to come to him more specifically. Jesus wants us to approach him in the flesh with our flesh. After all, Jesus came to us in the flesh, right? He wasn't just a spiritual savior. He was an embodied savior. He didn't just spiritually die. He physically died. His body, true flesh, hung on the tree. His body, true blood, was shed for us. And it is this death which saves us. It is this death which nourishes us. His death and embodied resurrection, this historical bodily event is what joins us to him and him to us. Jesus' visceral language of eating the flesh and blood is off-putting to the crowd. Many leave him at the end. Many of the crowds, his disciples, leave at the end of the chapter. And it's unlikely they're turned off because they think Christ has suddenly turned cannibalistic. Like that's probably, they probably could see the metaphor. They knew that's not what he was doing. But it's the intensity of the metaphor that was off-putting. My flesh, verse 55, is true food. My blood is true drink. Think of the devotion that he is calling them to. You want to call me king and prophet and teacher? This is what I mean. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And people leave because if Jesus is not actually what they're after but more bread, this is too expensive, right? This costs too much. They can find bread other ways. It's too high for them, but it's not too high for Jesus. Uh, They didn't love Jesus that much, but he loved them more. Which brings us to the final emotion in this sermon throughout. Jesus was indignant that they would tell him what to do. He felt compassion toward them at their misunderstanding that all they wanted from God and life was miracle bread. But last, Jesus' tone is one of commitment. Jesus was committed to give them and us so much more than we wanted. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I will give it to you. For on him, on me, God the Father has set his seal. 
while Jesus might have experienced indignation at the crowd's disrespect, been concerned by their misunderstanding, overall, Jesus' tone in John 6 is resolute because he knows that he will accomplish what the Father sent him to do. He will save completely all those God saved him to, gave him to save. John 6, 35 to 40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe, no matter. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's another thorny philosophical question in here, the relationship between God's sovereignty and salvation, our responsibility, but Jesus just lets both stand side by side, and for that we should be thankful. Uh, Verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Which is it? Both. There's no fatalism here. There's no hopelessness. Jesus might be insulted by the prideful unbelief of the crowd. He might be concerned at their inability to understand. But that doesn't keep Jesus from being confident in his commitment and ability to save everyone the Father has sent him to save, everyone who believes. And our confidence rests in his confidence. At the end of this word, so many disciples leave and abandon Jesus, but the 12 are still there. And why are they still there? Because they place their faith not in their ability to understand. They still are frustrated. They still said this is a hard word, and I don't get it. But they won't leave because they're confident in Jesus. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else is himself the source of eternal life and its substance? Let us not sell ourselves short, settling for food which is not food a life made from bread which perishes. Let us not sell Jesus short, asking him for one-off miracles when he offers us himself. This morning, will you do the single work of God, the one work, and believe in Jesus? Will you come and eat his body and drink his blood today for the first time or the thousandth time, finding your only hope in the person and work of Jesus on the cross? That is why Jesus came. Where else is there to go? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and that in Jesus, being God made human, we get to see the complexity of your word to us. We get to hear rightfully your rebuke when we come and try to tell you how to be king, tell you how to be God. Father, help us to be 
appropriately chastened and humbled. Father, we're thankful that we get to see your compassion, that you really are here by grace for our sake as a gift, that you want for us the very best, not food which perishes, not a garden of Eden which is a swamp, but a garden of Eden which is pure and holy and free from sin and death, that's marked by union with you, that we would live forever joyfully, happily, marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Father, thank you for your compassion for not letting us direct you on how to save the world, but you saving the world on our behalf. Father, and we're thankful for your son's commitment, his faithfulness to you, that he did all that you asked him to do, that he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for that, you highly exalt him and we highly exalt him. Help us to believe and stay with Jesus this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.